Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to switch today. Go to netsuite.com slash gold. All of the major stock market indexes finished the day with strong gains, although this time it was the NASDAQ that made a new all-time record high. Of course, stock traders completely oblivious to the bad news, or maybe even if they're not oblivious to it, they don't care about it. At least the foreign exchange markets cared a little bit. The U.S. dollar index, I think, finished at about a six-week low today, closed around 93 spot Although if foreign currency traders were really paying attention to the economic news or understood the implications, the U.S. dollar would be a lot lower. In fact, the U.S. dollar would have gotten killed yesterday if traders understood the implications of the data. And in fact, if they acted the way traders used to act to the very data points back in the 1980s or even in the first half of the 1990s when economic fundamentals played a much bigger role. Because once Alan Greenspan really began to actively involve himself in the markets, and of course that started in the late 1980s after the 87 stock market crash, but it really kicked in during the bubble days of the irrational exuberance of the latter part of the 1990s, once that attitude really began to take hold, the economic fundamentals basically took a back seat to all that. And then you got the Greenspan put, which was followed by the Bernanke put, the Yellen put, now the Powell put. But in particular, one of the data points that Wall Street used to pay a lot of attention to was the 
international trade deficit. We used to call it the merchandise trade deficit. Now they don't really report the merchandise trade deficit. They report the unified trade deficit, but they still report a deficit in merchandise. They just call it the goods deficit. But when we focused on the merchandise trade deficit, it was generally a market moving number. In fact, a lot of people attributed the 1987 stock market crash to a much larger than expected trade deficit, which also sparked a sell-off in the dollar and a sell-off in bonds. And a weak dollar and a weak bond market bled into the stock market. And ultimately we had the crash. Well, we got one of the worst trade deficits I've ever seen on Thursday and it was a complete yawn. Nobody spoke about it. Nobody cared. If you actually looked at the foreign exchange markets, the bond market, the gold market, right before the number came out, immediately after the number came out, you wouldn't even know that any data came out because the data no longer moves the markets. Now that doesn't mean it's not significant. It is as significant now as it was back in the 80s The only difference is in the 80s, people cared and now they don't. Why did they care? Because they understood the ramifications of a nation with a big trade deficit. The reason they no longer understand is because we've had these big trade deficits for so long without any relatively apparent negative consequences that people have been lulled into a false sense of security that it doesn't matter anymore. Well, the reality is it matters more than ever. It's precisely because the markets have decided based on Fed intervention that trade deficits don't matter, that they now matter more than ever because they're larger than ever. Had the markets provided some type of discipline, which is normally what happens if a country runs a big trade deficit the market will reduce the value of that country's currency and force up interest rates in that country. A weaker currency, which diminishes buying power and higher interest rates, will result in less spending, less borrowing, more savings, which will ultimately lead to more production, greater productivity, and these forces will seek to reduce the trade imbalance and take away the deficits and ultimately produce surpluses. But that didn't happen. Because the markets never disciplined our reckless consumption, we continued to consume more recklessly than ever. The dollar didn't lose any value, so we were able to continue to import more and more stuff that we couldn't afford and didn't make with the dollars that we printed. And interest rates didn't go up. In fact, they went down. They were artificially suppressed, which made it possible for Americans to borrow even more money, to buy even more imported goods, driving the trade deficits even higher to the point that we got the record deficit for September, which blew away the previous record, which was set all the way back in August, the month before. And every time... I speak about the trade deficits on the podcast and we set a new record, I always say, and we're going to break the record next month. And we continue to set and break record after record. Only this time, 
we shattered the old record. The initial number for August was an $87.6 billion deficit, which in August was the worst monthly deficit we had ever had. Well, they actually revised that up. So we now know that August's record-breaking deficit actually broke the record by a wider margin because it actually came in at $88.2 billion. Well, the September number came in at a shocking $96.3 billion. Now, the estimate was 87.9. So not only did we shatter the record, we blew away the estimate. In fact, the consensus ranged from a low of 86 to a high of 90.2. So that was the highest anybody thought the deficit might be, 90.2. We got 96.3. And look at the internals because the internals are even worse. So imports, which were up one full percent last month, and that was an upward revision from 0.8. Imports rose another 0.5% in September, but exports plunged by 4.7%. So we're importing more and at the same time, we're exporting less. Now, of course, everybody wants to blame that on the congestion at the ports. Well, wait a minute. If the congestion at the ports is the problem, why did the imports have no problem getting in? It was just the exports that had a problem going out. In fact, the problem should be on the import side because so many things are being imported. Most of the ships that are leaving are leaving empty. So certainly there was plenty of shipping capacity to load stuff onto an empty ship or put stuff in empty containers. So where the congestion at the ports should be a bigger problem is on the import side, not on the export side, yet it's only the exports that collapsed, not the imports, which proves that it's not a problem with congestion at the ports. The problem is we're not making stuff. The problem is at our factories or our lack of factories. We're not producing things to export. All the congestion is surrounding the massive quantities of stuff that we're importing that we no longer produce. That is the problem. This is a horrific number. It basically evidences the weakest economy in U.S. history. It's weak because we are more dependent than ever on the productive capacity of the rest of the world. We are living on the charity of the world because we did not pay for $96.3 billion worth of goods that we imported. We just printed money. Other countries were able to produce this. Now, you'll hear this nonsense all the time that, oh, this shows how strong our economy is because look at all this stuff we're buying. No, it just shows how strong the rest of the world's economies are because look at all the stuff they're making. They're making all this stuff and letting us have it for free because all we did is print money. If we really had a strong economy, we would be producing this stuff that we're importing. We wouldn't have trade deficits. Strong economies have trade surpluses. We are a bubble economy. We're only consuming and importing because we're printing and we're getting away with it because the world still values our currency. But if we had come out with a deficit this much above 
the forecast and a record high deficit back in the 80s or early 90s, the dollar would have tanked. It would have been a fast market in the Deutschmark, Swiss franc, Japanese yen, dollar would have tumbled. It probably would have sent the treasury bond market futures limit down, S&P futures limit down. It would have been a horrible day across the board for U.S. financial assets. Instead, it was a non-event. The markets didn't care about it. The reporters don't care about it. And again, that is the problem. It's precisely because nobody cares about these numbers that they've been able to get as bad as they are. But nobody's going to care about it until they do. And it's not going to be a problem until it's a crisis and then it's too late. So one of these days, we are going to suffer from the accumulation of these massive trade deficits. We've got record trade deficits. We've got record budget deficits. The twin deficits have never been this bad and they're going to keep getting worse. In fact, I will get to some of the government spending plans that are going to contribute to making both the budget deficits and the trade deficits worse. Because remember, when the government just hands out money to people that didn't produce anything, not only does that mean that we have bigger budget deficits, but we also have bigger trade deficits. Because the people who got government money for free, they want to buy stuff. Well, what's the stuff that they're buying? Well, all the stuff that's being made in other countries. So bigger budget deficits drive bigger trade deficits. And so it feeds on itself in this destructive loop that ultimately will lead to a currency crisis. But the other economic data that came out over the last couple of days, look at the durable goods numbers that came out for September. Not quite as bad as the forecast, but still a 0.4% drop. They were looking for 0.9, but they were looking for a decline from up 1.8 in September. That gain was revised down to up 1.3. So when you look at it, we fell less than expected, but we fell from a lower overall level that was expected. Wasn't as bad, I guess, ex-transportations. They were looking for a gain of 0.5 and we gained 0.4. And there, there was a upward revision to the prior month from 0.2 to 0.3. So that looks like it worked out to be a push. But I think the overall headline number was a net negative. I mean, not nearly as bad as the trade deficit, but still a negative number. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we got pending home sales, which were a complete disaster. They were up month over month 8.1% in August. And the consensus was 
for another gain of 1.7%, not nearly as big, but another gain. Instead, we were down 2.3%, which was way below even the lowest estimate of minus one. On the upper end, people were looking for plus 2.7. So a bad number on pending home sales. So why are pending home sales going down? Well, likely because fewer people can actually afford to buy homes even though you have record low interest rates or near record low interest rates, you have record high prices. And so, yes, you don't have to pay a lot of interest, but you have to borrow a hell of a lot of money. So even though the interest rate is low, when it's applied against such an enormous principle, people still can't afford to make the payments. The answer is the line at the DMV watching paint dry and a dead turtle. The question is, name three things faster than QuickBooks. Do you really want to be in that league? It sucks you in and then slows you down with manual processes, integration difficulties, and glitchy delays that leave you scrambling for the numbers you need. Now is the time to make the switch to NetSuite by Oracle, the number one financial system, because NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your finances, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need to grow, and it's all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time, no matter how big your business grows. Failing to switch to NetSuite will leave you stuck trying to make sense of your books while your competitors are sprinting ahead. 93% of those surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control by switching to NetSuite. And right now, special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those who are ready to switch today. So head to netsuite.com slash gold right now. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash gold. That's netsuite.com slash gold. But the big number, I guess, that we got as far as economic report card was the first look at the GDP for the third quarter. And by the way, before I actually get into the number, yesterday, following the release of this much worse than expected trade deficit, the Atlanta Fed came out with its final estimate for Q3 GDP that we just got today. And the Atlanta Fed went all the way down to 0.2. That's the lowest it's been. Remember, they were well above 7%. In fact, they were even higher than that a year ago, but a few months ago, they were maybe seven and a quarter, and they consistently lowered the bar to the point that it was almost at the zero bound level yesterday at 0.2. But remember, trade deficits subtract from GDP. So the bigger the trade deficit, the larger the subtraction. And so that's one of the reasons they got down to 0.2. Well, we got the actual number this morning the consensus was still 2.7, despite the fact that many people like the Atlanta Fed were well below that. Remember, the second quarter was 6.7. So 2.7 would have been a significant slowdown from the prior quarter. The number that we got was 2%, which was below the estimate. The consensus range was 1.6 to 4.8. So near the lower end of consensus and below the midpoint where the consensus was, but not nearly as bad as the Atlanta Fed had forecast, although this is the first estimate. They're going to revise this number a couple of times. And so it's still possible that the Atlanta Fed ends up being right 
and that the final number when we get it is well below 2%. And personally, I think that the trade deficits that we're going to get for the remainder of the quarter as we get the revisions, they're probably going to go up. And so I think we're going to get some downward revisions to this 2% number. The question is, will the revisions be big enough to get all the way down to 0.2? We'll see. And of course, I think tomorrow, maybe the Atlanta Fed is going to come out with their first estimate for Q4 GDP, which I'm sure is going to be a higher number. I mean, generally what the Atlanta Fed does is they set the bar high and then they gradually lower it and lower it and lower it because they're obviously very optimistic early on. And then as the data comes in to contradict their optimism, they end up adjusting their forecast to a lower level. But still, 2%, even if that's the number, it's a big slowdown from the prior quarter. More importantly, look at how much of the growth was from personal consumption expenditures. The forecast was that that was only going to add 0.7. So out of the 2.7, they expected 0.7 to come from personal consumption and the other 2% to come from business investment, you know, real GDP. Instead, 1.6% came from personal spending, which is huge when you consider the entire increase was 2%. So rather than 2% being contributed by business investment, that number was 0.4%. 1.6% from the consumer spending borrowed money or government stimulus money, only 0.4% came from probably more legitimate wealth-producing components of the GDP. So beneath the surface, that 2% number is actually a lot weaker than people might think when so much of it came from personal spending. And we know that a lot of that personal spending simply comes from debt. And what are people spending their money on? Well, we know they're spending it on imports. That's why the trade deficit was an all-time record high, because that extra spending was on imported products. And so none of it ultimately indicates economic strength, but economic weakness. Strong economies produce and export. The weak economies consume and import. But they can't get away with it forever because when our trading partners realize what's going on, then the dollar crashes and our import party comes to an end. Speaking of parties coming to an end, President Biden came out today and announced a slimmed-down spending bill. And of course, slim is all relative because the plan that the president unveiled today is a $1.75 trillion spending bill. And remember, they still have the infrastructure bill. I think that one was about $1.3 trillion. So add them up together, both of these things get passed, and it's $3 trillion dollars in additional spending, most of which is going to be conjured into existence. The money is going to be printed by the Fed, simply adding to the downward pressure on the dollar, increasing the level of the inflation tax. No one's getting all this government for free. Government costs money. Whether you're paying taxes or not, you're going to pay for it with higher inflation, which is why I call inflation a tax. And we're about to get a massive tax increase by way of inflation in order to finance all of this government spending, especially since the taxes are just not going to be there because all the big tax increases on the rich were pretty much 
jettison. The only thing that's really left is a 15% minimum corporate tax. And I'm not really sure how much money that is actually going to raise because, of course, you have to have the income in order to pay the tax, right? It's certainly possible that if we go through a period of a recession or a lot of inflation, that a lot of corporate earnings could get hit. And so the estimate of how much this tax is going to raise may end up being overstated if there isn't enough income to generate enough revenue based on the models that they used. But a lot of the other things were missing. I think they do have some surcharges in there for people that make over 10 million a year, an extra 5%, maybe another 3% if you make more than 25 million a year. But there are very few households that actually make that much income that is taxable on a yearly basis. So you're not gonna raise very much money even if those tax hikes end up surviving the final cut and they're in there. One thing that was not there is what I discussed on the last podcast, that billionaire tax, which was going to tax the unrealized appreciation of things like publicly traded stocks. There was a lot of discussion about it, but it's missing from the final bill, probably because a lot of people objected to it. It would have been a very difficult tax to administer. And of course, it would have been completely unconstitutional. And I did hear and read some discussion of the unconstitutionality. While many people were trying to defend it as being constitutional, there were some articles written about the apportionment clause of the Constitution and how it would violate them. It would be a direct tax and it needs to be apportioned. And people saying that you cannot just define anything you want as being income. Unrealized gains are not income by any definition of the word. And the courts have defined income many times ever since the 16th Amendment has passed. You have plenty of case law on the definition of income, and there is not a single case that has ever declared that unrealized gains constitute income. So it would have been unconstitutional. But one point I wanted to make on this is I did hear or read, I think, people saying that, well, it wouldn't be a direct tax. It wouldn't be unconstitutional because we already have direct taxes that are being imposed or taxes that you would think would be direct but are not considered direct that are not being subject to the rule of apportionment. And that is the estate tax and the gift tax. And I wanted to bring this up because it shows you how unconstitutional laws then become precedent and enable more unconstitutional laws because the estate tax and the gift tax are unconstitutional as far as I'm concerned. I don't care that the Supreme Court ratified their constitutionality. I think the majority in the case that upheld the constitutionality of the estate tax and the gift tax are wrong. And I'm going to explain the rationale that was used by the justices in order to validate an unconstitutional tax. So clearly the estate tax and the gift tax would look like a direct tax. The easy way to know a direct tax versus an indirect tax, indirect taxes are taxes that you pay indirectly to the government. Like if you go and you buy a product that's subject to a sales tax, 
You don't send your sales tax money to the government. You just buy the product. The merchant sends the money to the government. If there's a tariff, for example, on an item, you don't send the tariff to the government. You buy the product, and whoever imported the product, they send the money to the government. So you're indirectly paying that tax. And one of the reasons that the framers of the Constitution liked indirect taxes is because they believed they were self-correcting as to abuse, meaning if they raise the tax too high on a particular item, people would just stop buying it, and so the government wouldn't collect any money. And so there was a limit to how high the tax could be because if they raised the tax too much, they would collect no revenue. And so these were the type of taxes that the framers believed that we would rely on. And of course, they're the easiest for the consumer to pay or the individual because you just buy stuff and the tax gets calculated you know, by the merchant or by the importer. And so you don't have to keep any books and records. It's very simple for the average American to pay an indirect tax because he doesn't actually pay it. It's paid indirectly in the price of the things that he or she is buying. In contrast to a direct tax, a direct tax is when you send the money directly to the government, right? Let's say a state government, you have a property tax. They send you a bill and you write out a check to the government. You send it in the mail. You've paid that tax directly. So that's a direct tax. I mean, they try to make it out like nobody really knows what it is. It's really complicated. It's not complicated at all. The government wants to confuse people. They don't want them knowing what a direct tax is because a direct tax is subject to apportionment, which they never want to do. So they want to pretend that it's really hard to know if it's direct or indirect. It's real easy. The name tells you all that you need to know. You send the money directly to the government, it's direct. But if you don't, and indirectly, it's indirect. Well, what happened with the estate and gift tax, obviously, the person who pays a gift tax or an estate tax, they write out a check and they mail it to the government. So clearly, they're paying the tax directly to the government, it's a direct tax. But what happened, I don't even remember the court case, but they said that the government could levy an excise tax on a privilege. And the government said, we're not taxing gifts. We're not taxing estates. We're taxing the privilege of giving a gift. We're taxing the privilege of leaving your estate to your heirs. And we're going to measure the amount of tax based on the size of the gift or the size of the estate. And so they said, see, it's not a direct tax because we're not taxing the gift. It's an excise tax because we're taxing the privilege of giving the gift. And somehow the court bought into that logic that even though you are paying the tax directly to the government, that it wasn't a direct tax, that it was an excise tax because the tax was on the privilege of making a gift. Now that is all a bunch of nonsense because giving a gift is not a privilege. It's a right. See, you can't tax rights. You can only tax privileges. So the government had to pretend that when you give your property away, that you're exercising some type of privilege. What kind of privilege? Granted by who? We don't have a king in America who gives us permission to give away what we own. We have private property in America. And if I own private property, I can do with that property whatever I want. I can destroy it. I can use it. I can give it away. It's not a privilege to give away what I own. 
If it were a privilege, then I wouldn't actually own it. If I had to get permission from the government to give a gift, then I wouldn't really own it. The government would. So it's a phony privilege. The same thing with leaving your property to your heirs. If I own property, I have a right to determine what happens to it after I die. That's ownership rights. And so you can't turn that into a privilege for the purpose of levying a tax. They knew it was a direct tax. They couldn't tax the gift. So they claim we're going to tax the privilege of giving a gift. Even though making a gift is not a privilege, it's a right. You can't tax a right. You can only tax a privilege. So the government pretends a right is a privilege and the Supreme Court rubber stamped the whole thing. And I think it's a fraud. I think if this case were honestly settled, if somebody who makes a gift and pays a gift tax then goes to court and files and says, I want my money back. This is unconstitutional. It's an unapportioned direct tax. I think if this thing went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court actually heard the case and honestly ruled, they would agree that it's unconstitutional and overturn the earlier Supreme Court case that ruled this constitutional. But that'll never happen in America because once you have precedent, they just continue it even if it's obviously wrong, right? You create a bad precedent and it lives on forever. And now you're having people pointing to the estate and the gift tax and saying, well, you see, these taxes aren't apportioned. So why can't we tax the unrealized appreciation on stocks or other real estate? After all, if the government can pretend that a right is a privilege, they can also pretend that unrealized gains are income. See, two wrongs make a right. That's why you never want to make the wrong in the first place. And that is why it would have been such a bad precedent to have allowed the government to get away with that tax on unrealized gains. And I'm very glad that it disappeared and it's not going to be in the bill that ultimately becomes law. But I want to now talk about a few of the things that are in the spending bill. And then one thing in particular that is not. So one of the things that is left in the $1.75 trillion is universal preschool. So the government is going to fund preschool for three and four-year-olds. Because right now, everybody goes K through 12 public school, right? The federal government's not paying for that. The local school districts, local tax revenue is paying for K through 12. The government now wants to pick up the tab for preschool. Now, if local taxpayers want to pay for preschool, let them do it, right? I mean, if certain states or certain counties want to include preschool as part of your free public education, let them do it. This is not something that the federal government should be doing. The federal government isn't paying for kindergarten. Why should it pay for nursery school? But now all of a sudden, this is something the federal government needs to do, finance nursery school. Now, how are they even going to do this? I'm not even sure. It's only going to work for six years, which makes no sense, right? They're putting this program in and they're saying, hey, we're going to fund preschool but only for six years, meaning after six years, they're going to pull the plug on the program? Of course not. Nobody believes that. Once you have a federal program, it never goes away. They're there for life. There's an old saying, I think it was Milton Friedman, there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. So if we're going to have this temporary program where we have free preschool for three and four-year-olds, it's going to be there forever. Why do they sunset it for six years? So they can lower the price tag. 
by pretending that they're only going to do it for six years, they can pretend that it's not going to cost as much money as it really is. Because there's no way once the government gives you something, no one is going to vote to take it away. So the idea that it's going to go away after six years is nonsense. It'll be here in 60 years. It'll be here forever, right? Just like stuff that was passed 60 years ago that was temporary. It's all still here. So for that reason alone, the cost estimates are way too low. But also think about this. If the government is going to pay for everybody to go to nursery school, what's going to happen to the price of nursery school? It's going to go up. Right, Because a lot of people who aren't going to nursery school because they don't want to pay for it, now they're going to send their kids to nursery school because they don't have to pay for it. So now the demand for these preschools is going to go up. So what's going to happen? Price is going to go up. And as the price goes up, the government's going to have to now spend even more money on preschool than they think because they're looking at the current price of preschool and trying to factor in what it's going to cost. What they're ignoring is the impact that making preschool free is going to have on the cost of preschool. And of course, there are a lot of people who are now paying for preschool. They're going to stop doing that. Why pay for it when you get it for free? And the stuff that you get for free costs a lot more money than the stuff you have to pay for. Because when the parents are paying for preschool, they're cost conscious. They're shopping around. They're trying to get a good deal. But when you tell parents, hey, don't bother doing that, it's all going to be free, well, now they no longer care what it costs. Well, now the people who are operating the preschools, they know that the customers don't care what it costs, and so they're going to raise prices. And so now you're going to start to see preschool prices going up, just like college tuition goes up, because government pays for that. So again, this is a bad thing. The government should have no involvement in education on a federal level. There's nothing in the Constitution that mentions education or school. I mean, it's not like they didn't have schools back in 1789. They didn't have education. Sure, everybody was educating their kids. It was just none of the government's business. That's why it's not in the Constitution. Nobody thought the federal government would have any role in education. So all this education spending is completely unconstitutional and now we're going to get even more of it. But it's not just preschool. Now they also want to subsidize daycare, right? So apparently what they're going to do is they're going to make sure that parents pay no more than 7% of their income for childcare. And then anything above that, I guess, is going to be covered by the government. I'm not really sure when it gets phased out, like what your income level is. Again, this is supposedly only going to be funded for six years. BS, it's going to be here forever, right? Again, these programs are like herpes. They are here for eternity. You can't get rid of it once you have it. This is just a gimmick so that they can pretend that it's not going to cost as much money as it is. But again, the other factor is the moral hazard inherent in subsidizing childcare. What's going to happen? More people are going to buy childcare when the government is covering the cost. Once the parents know or the childcare providers know that, hey, anything above a certain amount is free to the parent, right? Because let's say the parent knows based on their income, let's say they earn $100,000 a year. So 7% of that would be 7,000. And I'm not sure, maybe 100,000 is too high a number, but for me, it's just easy to do the math. So let's say your income is 100,000. And so the government says, okay, the most you have to pay for childcare is 7,000. Well, if I am running a childcare facility and I know that 
once I hit 7,000, I could charge 10,000, 15,000. The customers aren't going to care because they don't pay any of the cost once it gets above a certain number. So once it gets to that number, well, the sky's the limit, right? There's no pushback from the parents who are sending their kids to daycare. See, normally, let's say you're at the $7,000 level and they say, okay, we're going to raise it up and charge $8,000. Maybe the parents will be, well, that's a little expensive. I'm going to shop around. Maybe I can get childcare cheaper. But if you don't have to pay any of it, what do you care? Hey, we're going to raise you up to $8,000, $9,000, $10,000. Who cares? Do it. So now you're going to see massive increases in childcare. Not only are you going to increase the demand from childcare because the government is subsidizing it, but there's no more resistance to higher prices. And then, of course, you have all sorts of fraud that comes in because the childcare companies could begin to offer all sorts of additional value that ends up going back to the parents that they can get for free. I mean, obviously, and this would be illegal, but I'm sure it's going to happen Let's say I know that your maximum that you have to pay for childcare is 7,000. And I say, hey, I'm going to charge you 15,000 a year, right? You're only going to have to pay seven. So the childcare provider is going to get $8,000 from the government extra. You're seven plus eight from the government. The childcare provider can say, hey, I'll slip you 4,000 under the table in cash. So I'll give you back half of what I get as long as you agree to pay the 15,000. And then the family is like, well, that's fine because I'm paying seven, I'm getting back four, I'm only paying 3,000 for childcare, right? All sorts of fraud happens when you have these government programs. And don't think, oh, the people are honest, they're not gonna lie. BS, look at all the people that put in phony claims for PPP loans or all sorts of stuff. Look, everybody is gonna try to get as much from this boondoggle as possible. And even without the fraud, just the moral hazard is gonna push up price. The fraud is just extra. And there's gonna be rampant fraud regarding phony childcare services. Maybe people will start enrolling kids in childcare when they don't even need childcare because they can have phony receipts. Maybe people will be sending kids that don't even exist into childcare facilities. I mean, who knows? This is gonna be a disaster. They're not gonna be able to police it. They're not gonna be able to find all the fraud. So the costs are gonna just spiral out of control. They're also extending the child tax credit for an additional year, sure. And they'll extend it again and again and again. But why are they pretending that it's only for one year? Because that way they can score it with a lower number and pretend that the spending bill is not as big as it really is. They're also extending some pandemic-related Affordable Care Act subsidies for another four years. Why? The pandemic's not gonna last for another four years. Why do we have to extend emergency programs that were designed to kick in during the pandemic, why do those have to persist four years after the pandemic is over? Also, they're going to allow Medicare to cover the cost of hearing. I guess there was some limitation to the coverage. Well, now more people are going to get hearing aids or whatever is being covered by Medicare because now it's free. And again, what the government probably does is they looked at how many people they thought would need this and that's the budget, but now people are gonna buy hearing aids or whatever they can get for free, even if they don't really need it. All right, maybe it'll make a little bit of a difference, or maybe people will get stuff for free from the government and then turn around and list it for sale on eBay, right? If the government is covering stuff through Medicare 
and you're allowed to get hearing aid and it's free or whatever they're giving away, even if you don't need it, you'll take it and then you'll turn around and resell it to somebody who does. Maybe you'll sell it to somebody in another country, right? Because you got it for nothing. I mean, people can shop on your store and you can ship it out to Europe or Asia. But in other words, the demand for whatever Medicare is about to cover is going to soar because Medicare is covering it. So again, whatever they've budgeted as to what they think it's going to cost is irrelevant to what it's going to cost because the mere fact that you can now get something for nothing means the demand for that is going to be much higher than it used to be when you had to pay for it. But when the government tries to figure out what it's going to cost, they look at historic data and they look at what things cost when people were buying it. But that's when they were disciplined by cost. Cost is a negative factor and people always weigh cost benefit. But if cost is zero, then even a minimal benefit means you're going to order the thing, even if it means you're going to resell it to somebody else. The bottom line on all of this is these spending bills are going to pass. Even the moderate Democrats have blessed them. So they're going to pass. There's very little tax revenue that's going to be added to cover the cost. So it's all going to be borne by the average American in the form of inflation and higher prices. We're going to have bigger budget deficits, bigger trade deficits. A dollar crisis is coming. We've been living on borrowed time. We're not going to be able to live on it indefinitely. And we are really upping the stakes here in the degree to which we are demanding the world continue to subsidize our profligacy. And I think all the evidence is there that they're not going to take it anymore. And therefore, you had better be prepared. You as an American, somebody who has savings, investments in U.S. dollars, before the bottom drops out of the dollar, while there are still people foolish enough to buy them, sell yours, and build yourself a portfolio of dividend-paying foreign stocks, get into the emerging markets that will be primary beneficiaries of the loss of purchasing power of the dollar as that purchasing power is transferred to consumers in emerging economies that will be consuming a lot more of what they've been producing. And yes, before the price of gold and silver really take off, gold continues to hover around 1800 It has a lot of trouble. Every time it peaks its head above 1800 it's been running into a lot of selling. Eventually, we're going to run out of sellers. We will never run out of buyers. More and more buyers are going to be stepping up. And eventually, when the sellers are gone and all that's left are buyers, then the price is going to soar. But before that happens, Buy some more gold and silver. Again, shift gold is where you want to go to get your gold and silver. And if you want to have a portfolio of dividend-paying foreign stocks to really weather this inflationary storm, stagflation, then contact one of my representatives at Euro-Pacific Capital, Euro-Pacific Asset Management. If you're outside the United States, definitely go to europacificfunds.com. That's my asset management company here in Puerto Rico epacfunds.com. And if you live here in the U.S., you can either work with us directly at Euro-Pacific Asset Management or contact the guys at Euro-Pacific Capital. That's europac.com. 